Hi, I'm Adrian Potter. Welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. For most of my life, I've been curious about why people do the things they do, especially people that create for a living. In these episodes, I'm going to talk to people that design and make the most amazing things. I'm going to ask them how and why they do the things they do. Please join me on this adventure into a creative life. Please welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution stage, Southside Bob. Bob's a musician and one critic has described his songs as being sort of folk punk. They're really great songs and don't mistake the folk punk epithet. He puts a lot of work into those songs and practices very hard and we talk about practicing and how important it is. Um, Big shout out to Neil Thomason for his help with the audio once again. Check out the Facebook page, which is starting up. Patreon's going to be coming soon, so you can help support this podcast and T-shirts as well. In between now and then, welcome to the stage, Southside Bob. Take it away. Southside Bob. Do you want to be called Southside Bob? Yes, please. What else would people call you? Bob. Just Bob. Or Southside. Really? Southside. Generally Southside Robert. Southside Robert. No, no, people don't call me Southside Robert. Some people just call me Robert. How did you come by Southside Bob? I was doing a show with my friend Linton at the Tivoli Hotel and another band on the bill was called Salvation Jane. It was an all-girl glam band. As a parody of that, for the evening I called myself Southside Bob. And then revisited it later and just decided to run with that. I was doing comedy playing at comedy shows, venues at the time, and I wanted a name, so... You're not a comedian, though. No, I don't see myself that way. Do other people see you like a comedian? Sometimes. Sometimes people see me as a comedian, yeah. Have you got any funny stories? Tell us a joke. <sighs> no, because I can't remember one off the top of my head. <laughs> it's like... It's like... Somebody says, talk to me. Tell me all about your life. This is what we're doing today. Southside Bob, welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. Have you ever felt that you were revolutionary? Have I ever felt that I was revolutionary? Uh, don't know. Don't think so. Don't think so. What does revolution mean to you? Well, revolution means uh, something that totally upturns the current order of things. A new start. To, to things. I've been asking this question, have you ever felt like you're revolutionary to pretty much everyone? And it's so caught up with a political idea, nobody can really answer it. But I see revolutionary as like, it could be anything. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I wasn't just applying to a political area, but I guess I was, no, that's no. the same way it does does get used in, in politics. But the, the term revolutionary comes from revolution. So originally... It, a revolution is what took you back to where you were before something happened. So like when you're the king's niece marries someone and has a kid and then you decide you don't want them as a, as a king, then the revolutionaries come up and stole the king's nephew's bastardised son from France or something, and that's a revolution. So that's, when it, that's where it originally came from. But, of course, now it's associated with 
anti-government, like left-wing revolutions or right-wing revolutions, but it's not associated with we get back to where we were it's for a new beginning. Mm. It's, it's seen as a more linear than that. Mm. A step in the right direction, perhaps, or a step in the wrong direction, depending on which way you are. If you're at a party and someone asks you what you do for a living, what do you say? I say I do environmental weed control for a living. Oh, I've got my own business and I do environmental weed control. Mm. And people think I use soap to kill plants or something. And then I say, no. Why? I, well, environmental, they, they assume I'm, I'm, you know, don't use herbicides and chainsaws, which is what I do use, amongst other things. Whereas what I'm referring to is the environmental weeds. So that's, that's what I do. Yep. And then I say I'm a beekeeper. And then I say and I do a bit of music. Yeah. yeah cool. We're going to talk about music heaps. Okay. Is that right? Yeah. What is it about weeds? Tell us about weeds. What is a weed? A uh, weed is a plant that someone doesn't want where, where it is. And the person who's in charge of that bit of land, I guess. So, you know, someone's weed can be someone else's crop. Someone's weed can be someone else's desired garden plant. So it depends on where it is. And, and so it's a human label of yeah it's a human label they're all plants they're all plants so mm. so environmental weed when you're talking about environmental weeds you're talking about some kind of putting a value on native vegetation and cons conserving native vegetation and what was here prior to Europeans bringing in plants from all around the world but that's a value judgment like some people don't agree with that some people like willow trees or blackberries or or don't particularly see the value in preserving bits of native bush mm. no one would say they want all the native bush gone but in a, any mm. given area it might be well what's wrong with willow trees here or mm. whatever so if you could have your way yeah would you take australia back to where it was i've never even considered that because not possible and i'm just trying to get a sense of like where you are Politically as well. Politically. Yeah. No. Come on, man. We'll do it. To, so, so to where to where it was when? <laughs> well, yeah. You you pick it. Eighteen thirty-five. Eighteen thirty-five was a good year for weeds. Um, <laughs> we wouldn't do this. No, no. I, I I wouldn't be looking to take Australia back anywhere. I'd be looking to try and um, do the best with what you could could do now. Because you can't turn back the clock anyway, so... No, you can't. That's fair. Do you have a, a frustration with the state of our countryside? Do you sort of look at it and go, oh, if only people hadn't fucked it or managed it better or... Yeah, I do, but once again, those things are all values. So, like, people have totally different ideas about, about what's good, a good way to treat land. And I, I do have my ideas, but I think... That's what I'm trying to get into. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Do I get frustrated with what I yeah. see, see bits of land being treated? Yeah, yeah. And and they're not treated the way that I would like them treated. But also it's a matter of resources and stuff to remedy problems as well. So so there's pragmatic... Yeah, you have to choose. Yeah, you have to prioritise what, what you're going to conserve or what you're going to try and uh, improve. Yeah. Out of anyone I know, I reckon you would have seen more of South Australia. Okay. Do you reckon that's a fair assessment? I don't know who you know. <laughs> Not many. I think mean, I know about three people. 
But you've been up north and you've spent a lot of time in the Aboriginal... APY lands, what they get called now. Yeah. 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 What's um, it like up there? It's desert up there. It's interesting because it does, you do get a different feel for the land as soon as you get off the highway and you're driving through and, and, and you get to see that um, changes in, in the country more than you do when you're going up the highway, it all looks the same. Whereas it's not when you get get off and start heading out into it. Um, what's it like up there? In the APY lands, well, um, there are ranges. There's the Everard ranges around Mimili, and then the Musgrave ranges up in it that run along the north of the border of South Australia. South Australian Northern Territory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. So they're the, they're the Musgraves, and there's a little little lot of ranges around Mimili called the Everard ranges, which are. It's quite quite low lying in a way, but they're a bit like Ayers Rock. They're, they're monoliths, a series yeah, right. of monoliths there. So they're kind of nice looking. They're nice looking completely rock. not famous at all. No, well they're nothing in size compared to to Ayers Rock, but yeah. it's quite scenic there. And then the, so and then you have the, the desert rivers going through. They only have water in them when um, when it rains, and they come down from the Musgraves. So there's rivers that go for quite a way down from there into. And then you've got, you get red sand as you head out closer towards, you know, Ayers Rockway. And then there are bits that are limestone and um, there are bits that are well wooded with mulga and, mm. you know, areas of bigger trees. You, you head further out towards uh, Docker River. Docker River's in the Northern Territory, but still that same area. And, and you've got xanthoreas, grass trees, yakas, mm. whatever you want to call them. Got them growing there. If, they're fantastic out there. There's a, there's a whole plains of um, xanthoreas. And you and you get the um, the desert oaks as well when you get up yeah. towards the centre and the sand. Yeah, the casuarinas. Yeah. yeah, you get ironwoods, yeah. which are um, really long-lived acacias, bigger than big, a lot bigger than mulgas, yeah. and very hardwood. Yeah. Coincidentally, we were talking name. about hardwoods before. Mm. There's a tree here in Adelaide called Weeping Mile, which is acacia pendula. Yeah. yeah, which is an amazing timber, which I want to get some. That's from New South Wales. That's from like around mm. the Hay Plains. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, if you if you drive the Hay Plains, when you get to the other side of it, you start to see them. Bloody good. What's the attraction for desert for you? Ah, uh, space or adventure or the the idea that it's a bit harsh or something that that it's wild. Idea that it's wild out there. And what are you after when you go adventuring in the wild? I just found that instinctively attractive. I guess when I first when I first started seeing some footage of people out in the centre, I've always been interested in reptiles and nature and and um, and you think of the desert as being that's where the lizards are. That's where the that's <laughs> where the snakes are. <laughs> I think a lot of people think of deserts. That's where nothing is. Oh, no, well, it's not. In, in Australia, it's not where nothing is. No, because, like, you're talking about places where there's big trees. There are trees, but they're not everywhere. In, yeah. you know, they, they pick their areas. and In the gullies. Mm, yeah. Oh, not gullies. I don't... So, like, big trees in the sand, you know, those desert yeah. oaks, how, where do, how do they live there? That's beyond me. Yeah. I mean, there are areas where there's very little. I mean, there's some shocking areas that aren't much fun. You head out from Coober Pedy out 
towards the end of data track from there it's just shiny rocks <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's right vile yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. none of them are uh, opals no no they're like glass oh. okay so we're just having a look at some of these rocks now my god they're actually translucent yeah you're driving along and you think why has someone smashed all the bottles on the side of the road that's crazy you can see through this quite easily and it looks like a piece of glass that somebody's scratched a lot and it's quite thin it's like what, what is the material it must be silica of some description yeah it must be silica of some description yeah far out that's bananas and that's what it's like that's what it's like this bit of Cooper PD yeah. out from Cooper PD driving from Cooper PD towards the painted desert or the Udnadana track it's yeah. it's that's somewhere where you you wouldn't want to be uh, stuck no <laughs> No, because there's no water. There's no water. No there's no food. trees to sit under while you no. wait for someone. Yeah. It's just hot rocks. What I'll do, I'll take a photo of these little rocks with the sun shining through because they're quite amazing. I didn't even know these things existed. And that's my problem. But it's good because now I do. I'll take a photo and put them on the podcast webpage. They're crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's full on. Far out. There's whole banks of them. Like all shining in there. Yeah, right. So if you did stay out there, you'd like have this sort of, you'd, you'd be blinded. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's out there. <laughs> you get out of the car and walk around there, it's like this stuff in like mud or something. It's, it's uh, shiny rocks in, in yeah, silt. Right. So what do you do out there when you go? Well, I, I went out there originally um, to do some camel mustering or out in the pitch jar lands. So did you go there for the camel muster or did you just go there and there happened to be camel mustering and you got involved? When I first went there, it was actually like a, um, a preliminary heading up there, but I was heading up with a friend of mine who'd lived up there for a few oh, years. Yeah. He yeah. lived up there for a few years. He was going up. So that was my opportunity yeah. to go up. I mean, I'd done a bit of driving around out back, before that, like yeah. a lot of people do, you know, out right. past the Flinders. Well, yeah, I, I went to the Flinders and then just kept going and yeah. finding little tracks and, and things yeah, around. Yeah. And that was the Flinders water. is an amazing place, mm. isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Like the Flinders is desert too, and it's it, it's one of the treasures, including what used to be Kangaroo Island. We're talking in January. Sorry, we're talking the first of February. 2020 and kangaroo islands just burned itself to a crisp poor thing mm. but that was a treasure and the flinders is a treasure as well yeah, yeah. it's north of adelaide maybe a day's drive yeah well i wouldn't say the flinders ranges was desert but you get beyond no, that you're in the desert it's pretty harsh though it's, and it, it's harsh yeah. and at the same time it's really fragile it's like you could kill it pretty easy but it'd kill you right back yeah all right so that's an example of when you were saying well, how do you treat how do you treat the lamb or the goats up there will trash the flinders goats are trashing new south wales there's there's an example of something when i look at it, i just go what are you doing right yeah. you drive around um out back new south wales or out from broken hill out north and out east and it's just full of goats and that's deliberate that why because in the last big drought when John Howe was in, whatever yeah, that went in. Yeah, years yeah, ago. yeah. A lot of the country was destocked because of the drought. And 
at the end of the drought, rather than restocking it, they just kept the goats and started farming the goats. Because you can sell, you can sell goats, round up goats and sell goats, and and you don't have to buy the stock. Oh, and they man. live and they live they live there as well. Yep. And they can get to things that sheep can't get to, yep. and destroy everything that sheep can't destroy. So in the short term, they were seen as an asset. And and actually, they have that's become what they do there. There's there's far more goats out there than sheep, and they round them up and sell them, but they release some. They're treating them as as stock. So um, and they just breed. That's such a, such a it, it should be illegal. This is my opinion on on what they're doing. It's just are uh, you going to make the whole place into a desert? Because and it is, it's turning to a desert. There's nothing there, it's drying up. The trees have been eaten up to whatever the goats can eat or climb to. Yeah. And then when something does come back, the goats will eat it before it gets yeah. a chance. The next generation starts to seed. So right, yeah. the, the older generation can survive this drought, yeah. but there's not going to be a next generation. And we're talking a generation of mulga or something like that. Like mulga lives for 70 years. So... You if, should just, just we've talked about mulga a couple of times, and mulga's like a, a eucalypt tree. Acacia. Are, a, it's an acacia. Yeah, yeah. My apologies. But it's short and stumpy, and it's got lots of sprouts coming out of a big root bowl. Uh, you better say yes, because you... How would I describe <laughs> it? How would I describe it? I would describe it as a fan-shaped tree. This, uh, long-lived wattle. Uh-huh. I don't know about lots of shoots coming out of a stump, out of a... Well, where did I get that from? My idea of mulga is like... I had a look at a picture of mulga. Yeah, here we go. We're going to point it up, put it up to the microphone so everyone can see. No, I know people can't see, but when, you, when you're out in the desert and the mulga's flowering, you can see it's a wattle. It's yeah, got right. yellow flowers. Yeah, but you've yeah, got one okay. growing in the front. Yeah. So what are we talking about? We're talking about... Oh, yeah. So these things are long-lived trees and... If they don't have another generation after, but, so they'll live for 70 years, but if the goats just keep cleaning up the next generation, yeah. the whole thing will be desert because that's all that's there is mulga, yeah. you know? Yeah. That's all you've got. Yeah. Um, well, that's the dominant tree anyway. So you take out the dominant trees, yeah. things are going to turn into dust yeah. bowls. Yeah, and there's no, nothing to hold the soil together. And that's right. So you head out towards yeah. Tipperborough and it's just full of goats, like goats all up the road and, and that well, that all feeds into the flinders because you know they don't stop at the border no. so in a good year we like, like, like we've just had now when we've had rain we've had you know just now we have yeah yeah so like when you, when in february yeah when yeah. in february you get rain and there'll be pools of water and creek running then the goats can spread out yeah. and some will get to the flinders and just keep repopulating the flinders so if you keep taking the goats out of the flinders as we do we cull they're yeah. just going to keep coming in from New South Wales. Yeah. Do you do that? Uh, no, I've never culled. No, I don't have a gun. Yeah. I don't have a gun licence, so no. Yeah. You wouldn't do that? I wouldn't. I don't know if I wouldn't do that. I just don't do yeah. that, you know. Yeah. I'm, not a, I'm not a gun owner or a yeah. shooter. Yeah. yeah, we were also talking about mustering camels. Mm. What do you muster camels for? Uh, my friend who I went up to the Pitjantjara lands with... Warwick was um, going to be working with Roger Smith or Roger Kai Pippi, who's Aboriginal fella up there, who was the, the camel man at Fregon at the time. Fregon's a little settlement. Yeah, yeah, south of Ernabella. So, and um, camel people often have, uh, you know, 
the ideal of if we can sell some camels to Arabia and get some gold watches. So we're going to catch them. So the, 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 the idea was to catch the, you know, the million dollar camel that some sheik wanted. What? what? <laughs> and there was some, there was, there was another, yeah, there were connections through Queensland. To, to, There's to, a million dollar camel out there, folks. All you have to do is find it. Is, is that like some El Dorado camel? How do, how do, what is a million dollar camel? A million dollar camel might be a really good looking camel, a really fast camel. Yeah, right. That's what Mulga looks like. Oh, yeah, wow. Yeah, that's nothing like what I thought a Mulga looked like. I'll have to take a photo of this and put it on the website as well. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> people, can, people can be educated about our fauna. And well, if you're, driving, if you're driving up to, you know, ever doing the drive to Alice Springs or Darwin, oh, most of the way that's Mulga. Yeah. As soon as you get past, say, Glendambo, Till Tennant Creek, most of the trees are mulga on the way up. It's the, pretty the far bushes. north too, isn't it, in Australia? Yeah, you could get mulga in the um, Flinders Ranges. That's probably around yeah. south as they come around there, around yeah. Port Augusta, Flinders Ranges. But there's a, another tree called the Western Mile. That's the one that's around Port Augusta, which is slightly bigger than mulga. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Mustering camels. Yeah. What, I, do, you do? what do you do? What do you I do can't. with them? So the reality was that a lot of these camels ended uh, we, 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 there was no million dollar camel there was a market for camels to the abattoir in uh, Peterborough which is a lot less romantic but um, it's uh, worth a lot less money <laughs> oh sure. yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah not, not yeah. worth a lot of money at all yeah. unfortunately now they're culling the camels and rather than you know they're um, just shooting them shooting them, them yeah because they, because they want to get cattle back up on the lands oh okay so um, and who's they? They is some of the powers that be in the APY lands yep. who see that as the way forward to, to bring back past Could pastoralism. You explain what an APY land is? APY land. lands, the Aboriginal lands um, for the Pitjantjara and Yunkajara people. Mm. That's what it means, Pitjantjara and Yunkajara people's land. Yeah. yeah. And you can't, tra- my understanding is you can't travel on the APY lands without permission that's right yeah and that's permission from the APY that's that's permission from the APY um, inhabitants I guess so there's a process so if you get invited up by people then it's got to get improved by the the people who dish out the permits yeah so a lot of people work up there yeah and so you know if you're a teacher in a community then you get a permit and it's organized through the education how many people live in the APY I don't know off the top of my head. Like the Have communities are, well, let's say a community like Fregon might only be 200, 300 people. Mm-hmm. And there's several of those kind of communities. And there's bigger ones like uh, Unabella, which might be a thousand mm-hmm. people. I'm only mm-hmm. guessing those numbers. So all up, there's not a lot of people up there that compared to, you know, Tea Tree Gully or, you know, you know a suburb of Adelaide <laughs> is going to have a lot more people in it yeah. condensed. These people are spread up all the, all the way to the Western Australian border. So the APY lands goes from basically the highway yep. west to the Western Australian border mm. and north to the Northern Territory border. They're the lands that were given back in the 1970s by mm. Don Dunstan. They were all pastoral. It was all pastoral land. That was decided... Maybe it was very marginal land. There was also a population of 
of you know averages that have always been there so um living traditionally too well semi-traditionally no they weren't living traditionally like that would be an exaggeration they were Ernabella was set up as a mission, so mm. they'd, they'd been like they'd always been on their land and and live yeah living traditionally in terms of they speak their own language, and they they kept their own customs, but they weren't living traditionally. They were living in communities, so mm. it was fifty fifty. If you look at a map and you look at where the APY lands are and see how vast that area is, it's curious that I'm even asking these questions in this way. I clearly don't have a lot of information even mm. though I live in South Australia I've lived in South Australia for 25 years yeah well it's the bit of the country that I guess most people don't go to and as you said you're not allowed to so um, nowadays a lot of people do get in their um, their cars and drive just and just go but you're not allowed to go and then there's signs saying you're not allowed to mm. which is something they might change because they might start chasing the tourist dollar at some point and, yeah, right. and try and modify that I mean you can go into the art centres in yeah. in, in Dockner I think which is the first and community and too, probably. Can you, yeah, well yeah. I don't know I'm, I know there's a, a big arts and crafts people that do look at, what do I know I know fucking nothing about mm. this stuff that's why I'm asking the questions too, because yeah. I wouldn't mind finding out. Yeah, and but basically, yeah, you're not allowed in. Mm. And so when we went up, yeah, we had permits to go in to do this. Mm. So you go up there, you muster in kennels, and some of these kennels um, you collected yourself. You've had some kennels in your backyard. Yeah, that all happened afterwards. Like, I went up and went to Fregon a few times and did yeah. this, this stuff. Decided I like camels and through that. Are they good pets? Oh, camels are great. But you got to have a, a bit of land, really. You can't really keep a lot them of in, the, in the suburbs. They're, it's the same as people who own horses, I guess, who like their horses or people who own yeah. sheep, like their, whatever, you know. They're, they're a big animal. Camels are really smart and really gregarious, and if you train them well, they're um, really good work animals, you know. That's, yeah, what, right. well, that's why they're in Australia in the first place. They didn't, yeah, they didn't, tell us why. Well, they didn't get here accidentally. They were brought here as work animals, you know. They so flew. It was, it was a policy to bring in camels and to bring in camel handlers. And this would have been early in the settlement, 18-whatever. 1860s Yeah. from then on because um, Birkham Wills used camels, which Birkham isn't a very good, good advertisement for camels. Yeah, yeah. They, they We've got to just explain them. who Birkham Wills is because they're famous oh. dudes in Australia. Just yeah. briefly, briefly. Burke and Wills were the two leaders of the expedition. Burke was the leader, Wills was second in command. So that's why it's known as the Burke and Wills expedition. There was actually a whole lot of people who went from Melbourne, being sponsored by the Geographic Association or whatever there, to to get to the top, to open up the country, you know, explorers. Explorers in the old sense, where it kind of explore this country and open up and see what's out there and then we can... See if they can find an inland sea, for instance. Yeah, or or see what's arable and what can be used. Yeah. And, but it was also a bit of a, a race because Stuart was a Scottish Adelaidean who was heading up that way as well. And they, they were pretty anxious to beat Stuart, the Victorian. So it's a bit of an old South Australian-Victorian rivalry. And, um, and as part of that, Bert was inept at, at organising things and, and just pushed the boundaries a hell of a lot. Like what they 
what they did in terms of accomplishing actually getting there is amazing because it's a hell of a long way and they walked yeah. it. They walked yeah. the whole way and they walked the whole way back. So incredibly tough people, but they starved essentially. Like yeah. they just, they just, they got, and they got back halfway back where they were supposed to meet their party, and their party had already given up on them yeah. because they couldn't just sit there and wait that long. They were yeah. dying, <laughs> just yeah. waiting for these guys who'd gone to the top and back. Yeah. Anyway, so they allegedly they got somewhere near the top and came back and died in the middle of the country. Stuart from South Australia rode a horse called, uh, I was going to say he was called Billy, but no, that was Burke's horse. Burke, Burke had, a, had a horse as well. And Stuart did get to the top end as well. He went all the way to the top end, was met by hostile Aborigines, thought, I'm not fighting these dudes. Turned around, went back to Adelaide, and then went back again. <laughs> Found a way around him the second time and got there. And that's why it's called the Stuart Highway, the highway from Adelaide that's, to Darwin. That's so interesting. And Stuart is like unknown, whereas Burke and Wills are very famous. It's a very famous story in Australia, probably because they were failures. They were, they were failures, but it was also the tragedy of the, tragedy of the series of events. I mean, yeah. the, the overriding thing was they did something that was really pushing the boundaries of what was actually possible but yeah. then at the end of that there was like the party that was waiting for them only left the day before yeah and they buried food for them they buried a little bit of supplies but yeah. but not a lot and then even more bizarrely after Birkenwills had got there the party that had left felt guilty about having left and actually sent someone back to see if Birkenwills had been there and they had that they'd want got left off, but they'd covered, they hadn't left another mark to show they'd been there, and they'd actually disguised that they'd been there because they were worried about the Aborigines interfering. It that's one of the kind of yeah. ideas is that Bert wasn't very good at dealing with the locals, yeah. and um, and so the guy who went back went back, oh no, they hadn't been there, and they had <laughs> like, <laughs> like, so they missed them twice oh, by just ineptitude of not, you know. Scratching yeah. a mark on the tree or something. And, uh, yeah, it's not that you couldn't walk from Adelaide or, or ride a horse or whatever. It's just that white people hadn't yet. Uh, I actually think it would be very difficult to do what they did, like, even yeah. though they, they pushed it. Like, I think people get, oh, you know, they were idiots. They weren't idiots. They found their way yeah. all the way to the top end and back yeah. to the same tree. Right. Yeah, yeah. Now that Wills was a surveyor, and they actually uh -huh. came back a slightly different way because they found the way up hard. Uh -huh. So they, they actually said, "Oh, we'll go around, try going down this way and see if yeah. it's any better," and found their way right back to the same camp. So that yeah. they were they weren't idiots, and unless you say there were the whole pretext of racing to the top, <laughs> you know, leaving in the middle of summer. They left. Oh, they left God. in the middle of summer. They left. Where in the round where in the Minka is, yeah. which meant when they got to the top end, it was the wet season, yeah, and then they were getting bogged, yeah. and then they had to walk back in the middle of so like the worst time of year to do it, you do it the other way around, yeah. anyway. Yeah. I guess now where are we going? That's not why camels came, that's one incidental example. Why camels came to Australia around that time was to open up the country, like yeah. to, to, be, to be used as a beast of burden, so because we didn't have trucks. They were used as um, towing wagons, towing wagons, like that's one way white people used them. And then they were used as individual animals in trains, camel trains, to build the GAN, for instance, or- Which yeah. is a, a train track from Adelaide to Darwin. Yeah, yeah. Mm. 
But they, and so that's the most famous instance. But they were used all around the country. They used to set up the gold fields or whatever. Whenever they needed to lug stuff in to set something up, they were used. And to do that, they had to bring in people who understood camels. And where did they come from? And they came from India, Pakistan, maybe Afghanistan, but they were called Gans. So. Yeah. So Punjabis, Sikhs, you know, they, were, yeah. they weren't all Afghanis by any means. Yeah. That was just a general kind of name for them. I always thought they were from Afghanistan, not no. those people. Nah, they were from all over the shop. Yeah. From northern India, what's now called Pakistan. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so heading towards Afghanistan, but yeah. Do you still have camels now? No. Why not? Ah, uh, why not? Because I decided I wasn't able to give them proper attention living in the in the city. You know, I'd have to go. My camels lived out of the city, and I had to visit them, mm. go and visit them once a week. You know, mm, and, mm. and work them once a week. So it was quite a. Did you ever race them? Yeah, yeah. That, that's 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 why I got camels here. We got a roundabout way to that but yeah when after spending time with camels then there's a camel racing circuit in Queensland that I went and saw a couple of times and thought oh that's kind of fun oh well I'll go back to Fregon and get a couple of camels and give it a go and so did that for a few years to win no (laughs) no if I was no no my camel didn't like racing It was a nice animal, but he didn't want to race. No, he wasn't the million-dollar camel. No, he wasn't. He resented it. He was a million-dollar camel in other ways. He had a, a good temperament, but yeah, not, right. not for racing. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cool. What did you see yourself doing when you were a kid? I had no idea what I was going to... Oh, when I was a kid, as in yeah. what was I going to grow what, up to be? Was, yeah, 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 nothing. I had no idea. No, never. I always hated being asked that, asked that question as a kid. Yeah. Never could answer. What I'd always give I'd always give smart answers like yeah, you're I want to be, be a fireman or policeman. No, I used to say I'm gonna be Prime Minister or I'm gonna be a rubbish collector or you know, yeah, right. you just say say just dumb things, yeah. You must have done stuff when you were a kid. What were you doing? Played sport, yeah, as a what kid. What sort of sport? Uh basketball, cricket. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was spent a fair bit of time doing that kind of thing, I think. What about school? What was that like? That was all right. That's where all my friends were. Yeah. So apart from friends? School was good, I, depending on what teacher you had and how well you got on with them and yeah, um, yeah. and what you thought you were learning out of it. It could be good. could be, um, you know, a socially competitive place. School can be a lot of things for a lot of people and it changes over time. Did you have creative people in your family? No, I wouldn't say so. I wouldn't. What did so. your mum and dad do? Mum was a teacher, but mum was mum when I when I, like I had three brothers, so she was just she was, busy. she was being a mother at that point. Went back to teaching after. But yeah, right. So you were the youngest out of four. No, I was the oldest out of four. Really? Mm. And my father was a aircraft pilot. Did you ever want to fly a plane? No, never. Well, wasn't ever encouraged. Yeah, right. It wasn't discouraged, and my youngest brother did actually get his licence and do some gliding and stuff, uh-huh. but um, my father was very much into not living through your children or putting expectations on your like children. deliberately to, not. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, not as in if if any of you want to, you know, you can become yeah, pilot. But I'm not yeah. going to suggest you know suggest yeah, yeah. that to you. It's yeah, up to yeah. you, up to you to actually want to do it. It sounds like you had a bit of freedom. Uh, yeah, I had a lot of freedom. I think in 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 some ways, yeah, not not a lot of um, rest, restrictions or you know pressure or guidance or something like that. Yeah. Did you get on well with them? Yeah, reasonably well, yeah. They're still kicking around? Yeah. What about your brothers? They're still kicking around as well, and yeah. I can I'm okay with them, but they're kind of spread around a bit. Yeah, like uh, modern families are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my family is too. Yeah. All over the joint. Yeah. Was there anyone who massively influenced you? Like a mentor? Personally, yeah. I mean, there were some people when I was growing up who probably who influenced me who are like I became interested in like political stuff and activism and um and so there were some people in the local community who were interested in that like kind of what was rocking your boat then I guess it was the the time of um the anti-nuclear movement mm. and and so Late 80s, conservation, the anti-nuclear reaction to the Cold War and yeah. reaction to the government's positions on that. Like, it's probably pretty similar today, actually, to the way people are reacting to government's positions on climate change. I think that's probably the equivalent thing now. I think I hadn't thought of that before, but mm. it was a pretty big thing at the time, the Cold War, when it Reagan really, was. It totally was. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I remember looking out my window watching for the for the mushroom cloud. Right, yeah, yeah. I yeah. was scared shitless. And yeah. I've talked to a few people who, we're 50 now, I don't know, you're about 50, aren't you? Yeah. Something like We're talking in the 80s, early 80s. It was a frightening time. I th for me it was. Yeah, yeah. Sort of completely out of our control. I'll tell you a funny story. <laughs> I woke up one night in the middle of the night, like this is as a kid, you know, as a, as, a, as a teenager, still living at home. For some reason I couldn't sleep. I don't know if it was a hot night, cold night. went outside and uh, looked up at the sky and it was pink. <laughs> and it, 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 what, it was the middle of the night. It wasn't like a sunrise, sunset thing. There was like a pink, just areas, not all of it. Uh, just patches of pink, uh, like a like a magenta, pinky purple color, and I watched it, and I've and I was thinking, I'd read a lot of stuff about wars. Is this gas? <laughs> is this oh. is this what is this? You know, what's going on? And anyway, I watched it for a while, and it kind of dimmed a bit, and I went back to bed. I'm just feeling what if it is. I can't do anything about it anyway, and and. Um, Anyway, it was the, you know, the Southern Lights, the... Yeah, yeah, right. What did they call that? It was yeah, the Aurora. Aurora, Aurora Australis, yeah. Australis. Because it was, in the, it was in, the, in, the, in the paper the next day. You'd actually oh, been yeah. out that that's what it was. And my parents were... I said, yeah, I saw that. Why didn't you get us that? Why didn't you show us that? Because oh, I thought it was the end of the world and I didn't want to bother you. Yeah. <laughs> God, you're obviously a bit more relaxed mm -hmm. than I was. So how did you get into music and songwriting? I wrote poetry at school and that's what I was into. I was into writing, writing stuff. Mm -hmm. And I never really, um, I never studied music. All my brothers did. This goes back to my parents not making anyone do anything. Everyone was offered to do music and I said, I don't want to do it. Mm. And so all my, my other three brothers all, you know, went through childhood music, Yamaha music program or whatever and one of them became quite a good guitarist. 
and I was the one who didn't. And I was the one who ended up writing songs and, and doing that stuff. So I only picked up guitar later, after, afterwards. And that was because I started trying to put tunes to poems, I guess, you know. Are, you, are they all still playing? No, none of them. But you are. But I am, yeah. But my, my brother who played guitar did play on my first record, played some guitar on my yeah, first okay. record, yeah. But, yeah, he's a... couple of shredding lead breaks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did he? Yeah, he still played a bit of electric guitar on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. How would you categorise your songs? There's one idea, this is a quote, sort of punk folk. Yeah, it's a good quote. Where'd you get that? Oh, man, I'm totally into research. How would I describe my music? I'd describe it as sort of punk folk. (laughs) No, I can can see... um, how that works in that there's a bit of roughness or do-it-yourself about it probably because of the the quality of my voice or and also perhaps the limitations of my playing and composition maybe even you know so it's very do-it-yourself simple uh, way of of writing and performing and also lyrically I guess it's very um it can be earthy or based in you know uh, based in experiences and and stuff. It's not, you know, ambiguous, generalised, generalised fluff or something. The... Yeah, it's a bit more gritty than that. So gritty, and that, and folk is that. Folk is gritty stuff that uh, gritty, gritty content, or a lot of it is. I reckon folk's also very local, and that's one of the things that really strikes me about the way you approach it. There's a localness about you personally and also your work like you're so Adelaide so South Australia Do you, is this fair look uh, yeah I mean in terms of in terms of writing songs there is there is some of that but I mean um, I don't want to be too like parochial and exclusive about, about I don't think that. it is parochial or exclusive I just think the things you involve yourself in the way you kind of approach your whole life is as if you're walking and spending time in a local area you might be driving it's not it's a, it's a sense of something it's not I, I don't even know how I'm going to articulate it but I think there's something very special and in a way unique about the way you go about your life and the especially with your songs and the way you perform it's not in any way negative parochial or whatever you know it's about you and your space right here and right now as opposed to being like you're living in a city but you're not a city boy and again this is like not i'm just trying to come up with analogies so to explain what i see well, I mean, yeah, I'm all right. I'm living in a city. I probably am a city boy, but I might have other, you know. You don't have a city kind of sensibility or something like a. You're not tied up in a rat race, for instance. You run your own business, sure, but you're not like. Can't imagine you being that interested in social media, current trends. But what I was thinking was that I'm. All right, I'm living in the city, I'm not a city boy. Well, more so, I'm living in a consumeristic, capitalistic society, you know, and while there's elements of that that we all partake in, I'm not. 
overly enamoured with consumerism or materialism or um, you know wasteful wasteful aspects of of what we do and environmental weed control and beekeeping and writing songs and performing songs down the local pub is all part of that perhaps yeah yeah I mean perhaps I mean I'm just trying to tease this out it's really interesting it's not even something you would be able to think about I don't think I definitely um, would rather play be able to play in my my local place Um, but I'd love to I'd love to go somewhere else and play as well you know so I I, am it's just uh, it's easier for me to organise a gig at the Grace Emily than a gig at some pub in Brisbane that's not going to be worth my while to go there you know so so, um, you know that uh, I don't know how much to read into that. You know, it's not. It's deeper though. I'm really interested in teasing this out a little bit because, yeah, you could you could play anywhere. It like I think Billy Bragg would be somebody who'd have the same. Maybe he would be an analogy. You know, like his songs are similar. Which is this? It, yeah, yeah, Billy Bragg's great. Bob Dylan, maybe, but Bob stuff. Dylan's much, yeah, his earlier stuff, yeah, and Bob Dylan's earlier stuff, maybe. But Bob Dylan was kind of universal anyway; like he was looking at a very big picture. Bob Dylan was, but but in the same way that you're saying, well, you write songs about what's going on here. Well, that's what Bob Dylan did. He wrote songs about what was going on in America at the time, and that that's the difference. Like people in America should write songs about what's going on in America. People in Australia should write songs about what's going on in Australia, you know, but with universal themes. Tolstoy wrote War and Peace. It was about something going on in Russia, right, you know? Um, that's where you're going to get your, your best stuff. And so the bands that I loved were, um, say, Midnight Oil, right? You know, Sydney's a lot of what they do, and then when they did go for a drive, they wrote about what they saw there. Skyhooks is all Melbourne-based, right? And I, so I don't like I don't like the kind of cringe factor of you don't write about Australia or you don't write about Adelaide. There's nothing wrong with nothing wrong with some stuff in Adelaide. You don't write you know some stupid song about um, the Moors Balls great or something something naff like that. But if you well you could you, you, you should yeah. But if it's about the Magic Mountain, it's different. You know. So. <laughs> Magic Mountain used to be in Glenelg. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So. You know, when Bob Dylan's writing the the Ballad of Hattie, Lones and Death of yeah. Hattie Carroll, or um, when he's writing about the hurricane or something, he's yeah. writing about that about about what's going on. You know, mm. um, those are pretty universal themes of racism and um, injustice, though. I'm, and I'm not. Well, that's that. right. That's not, yeah, it's exactly right. That's what people. That's what and Midnight All Rights. You know, songs. That, you know that reference Sydney, but their songs about you know yeah. frustration with the city or yeah. frustration with the environment or you know the political system or or whatever. And you know Skyhooks might the songs might be more personal rather than um, overtly political. Some of it's political, but it's still social commentary based in to just name dropping the you know say Ligon Street Limbo. You know, right? Its name's Ligon Street, but it's about yeah, born you know, calling same. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's about it's about what's it's a, going on. It's the a story. story. It's about yeah. story or a, a caricature of what's going on in Ligon Street that night, which yeah. does transfer more or less yeah. to what's going on in your yeah. 
what's come up with all these conversations that I've been doing, and in fact, I noticed you've got a book on your shelf called Sapiens, and that's a really interesting book. I'm reading that at the moment, right? right yeah, yeah. And the thing that the first part of that book is that everything is a myth. Turn myth into the notion of story. Everything is a story. And when you write a song, sing a song, perform a song, you're telling stories. And that's a folk tradition. It's also a punk tradition too. Yeah, I guess there's two ways to do it. You could be um, telling a story, or if it's more disconnected, it could be giving an image or giving a, you know, not every song's a story. Not every song's a story. Some, some songs might be evoking images without actually direct, you know, telling a story. Mine are more stories. Mm, I'm talking about your song stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, some, they're not all stories. Yeah. But, but in my case, yeah, a lot of them are, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I encourage everyone to check out YouTube. You've probably got a fair bit on YouTube, I certainly feel. I had more on there until my record company took it all off. Ah, oh, the bastards. <laughs> Can you put it back up? Yeah, you could, but like you said, I don't, I don't do that. You don't do that thing. shit. Yeah. Your website is southsidebob.com. Yes. Or one word, sour, S-O-U-R, S-O-B. Yeah. What's a soursob? Soursob's a plant, a weed. A weed. <laughs> An environmental weed. What's your feeling mm-hmm. on smoking weed? Um, I don't smoke anything. No, I didn't think you did. Mm. Some people think I do because I've got a beard or um, whatever. But, yeah. yeah. Just, do you have a, like a, a moral position on it? I have an aversion to it. So, so. Well, you know, what I guess I'm saying is I don't want to start morally, um, you know, being too judgmental about it or whatever, but, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a fan what is it or about, an advocate of it. No, what is it about something like smoking weed as opposed to drinking a beer for you? Oh, well, they have different effects on people and, and advocates of, of, of marijuana would say, well, that's better, at least the same or if not better and alcohol's the root of all evils, which I understand that um, alcohol causes a hell of a lot of problems and for some people it particularly causes problems. It's probably a little bit the same, like that for some people marijuana causes a lot of problems too and I don't think the advocates admit that that readily, that in the same way that alcohol... um, damages some people I think marijuana really damages some people and I think it's a bit of an anti-social um, drug but yeah that's how that's my take on it yeah I'm trying to just get a sense of where you are I mean all these conversations about what make people tick and I'm really interested in what makes creative people tick you know that whole thing I would talk about beer or smoking weed with everyone, but I think with you, you've got a position on it, and it's it's so you you've thought about it and you've decided. Not many people do that. I mean, I I do have an aversion to drugs. Yeah, like, full stop. Full stop. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. you know. It, that that's a bias to start with that might yeah. be closing my thinking on it if you want to get philosophical but yeah. um, does religion come into this for you like if you've got a particular faith that no i don't think it's religion yeah. that, that it's to do with it's my parents were teetotalers and didn't smoke and 
So probably I've I've got a bit of that, and you know that's my my upbringing. You know, particularly cigarette smoking. I was always taught that that was a that was bad for your health. Well, it's pretty clear that it is. <laughs> yeah, but 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 like but everyone's taught that to some extent, but uh-huh. but people still do it. But yeah, for me, I'm not that I've got plenty of friends who do smoke cigarettes, but um, I don't go out and lecture them on it. But you know, the idea of me for me of smoking cigarettes is that's not going to happen you know no make no mistake this is not about a lecture it's not even about um, a moral a moral standing you know we're going to lay down the law this is what people should or shouldn't do I'm just wondering what what your decisions are and like how that kind of fits into you living a life and being a creative person and you know you, you make decisions because you've got a set of inputs and yeah well I don't know how it fits into me being a creative person I don't know if some people might say it limits me as a creative person if I don't uh, mess my brain up a bit Bob Dylan said things like that so um but I mean I prefer to uh, think I've got enough creativity or imagination to come up with things without substances being yeah. the, the driver of that but you know I don't know how much drugs have influenced great art maybe a lot maybe not I don't know yeah, I've got no idea either yeah, yeah. Pete there is a there is a perception that they're very um, that they're important some people perceive that as being very important in in what has been done but most people who are taking drugs aren't producing great art. Um, I think it's got more to do with disposable income and lack of a steady job. <laughs> so you've got opportunity and money. And I don't know if I'd go that far. I think it's oh, just well, a, a well, way to distract yourself away from the bullshit that we have to... Well, what, well you know. why I'm going there is because, like, you know, uh, it's movie stars or celebrities or sports people, you know, who aren't necessarily particularly artistic still have high rates of drug use, you know. So... Well, does drug help you with with playing football? Does cocaine help you play football? Probably not. <laughs> so um, no, it's steroids and painkillers might. Anyway, we're not talking about them. We're talking about how okay, you cool. rock. And do you put aside time to work on your songs, or do you just let them come? Um, I'm not writing much at the moment. Maybe that's because I just let them come. No, when I when I am more actively working on thing working on my playing a lot i put a lot of side time on practice playing do you yeah what do you practice do you practice you don't practice scales do you, you practice yes. you do yes i spent like a year and a half doing scales and exercises a while i don't do that now and i'm not talking five minutes a day i was i was doing scales for hour hour and a half two hours a day i was doing exercises wow. for a while and I wasn't being creative necessarily. I was working on um, guitar playing. Yeah, it's techniques, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. It's the craft of it. So, um, so I was putting aside time for that. Yeah, you know, the short answer is probably um, I don't necessarily put time aside for it. I, I definitely don't put aside a time to create a song out of nothing. Like I've got to have an inspiration. You know, if I've got to, if I'm already writing something because something's coming to me, then I'll. I'll make time then to to, to do that process because I'm inspired to do it. But I don't try and manufacture songs when I don't have an idea or a, um, an inspira- a musical or lyrical inspiration to start with, you know. 
What about singing? Do you practice singing? I did as well. Once again, I did. Yeah, I, wow. took, I took singing lessons for a year and a bit and whatever. And every, every week was driving for an hour, hour and a half to do singing lessons. Yeah. And, um, and then doing those exercises every day or twice a day or whatever that I had to do to do the singing lessons. At the end of that time, I stopped doing them. Yeah, like. Did it help? Yeah, yeah, it helped a lot. Mm. Helped a lot with within the scope of you know what my voice can do. Yeah, it helped a lot, and it would help a lot if I was still doing that, um, as would the with the playing. But you, you can't do everything. Well, <laughs> you you've got to make decisions you've about make, how you use your time. Eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was, I guess, I was trying to make up, you know. For, for not having done some of that stuff earlier on is um, get a bit of a foundation later in life because I really do believe if, you, if you've spent a lot of time earlier on learning how to play guitar or learning, learning that, that's when you're going to be a good guitar player you know it's a bit hard to yeah especially when you do it when you're a young teenager or up until probably mid-twenties your brain's still forming and it becomes part of your mm. whole brain makeup. To do it later in life is still very possible, but you don't have that plasticity that you have when you're a young person. Eh? Yeah, and you don't have easily have the time. That's the other thing. You have to make the time to do that, which I could at the time. I did. Yeah. I did. And, you know, it was definitely good for my guitar playing. Definitely yeah, good. Yeah, and I think yeah. it was also good for my, my singing. Do you, when you pick up the guitar, do you play lead breaks or do you just end up playing chords and melodies? And I often write little riffs or you know, simple riffs or melodies and then convert them to chords and then use the chords as the basis you know like sometimes it goes backwards and, and sometimes the original thing I wrote isn't in the yeah. what people hear yeah. but it depends on what you've been playing and that's why doing exercises and scales is really good because you you learn some uh, it's the methodology in that that will that will change. Whereas if you don't do that, then you're going to write. If you only know three chords, you're going to write with those three chords. If you know 15 chords, you got a bit, and you know how other songs have been put together, you get a few more ideas. Especially how they flow into each other. Yeah. As those chords flow into each other, you get the movement of the song. So you would write music first and then lyrics, or? Yeah, it happens both ways. Yeah. It happens both ways, but. Oh, there's some good examples of where I've written, came up with musical ideas, and then, and then came up with some lyrics. But but it usually happens. The bulk of it happens together. Like you know, yeah. you might have a germ of a lyrical idea. Yeah. But then as you get the music for it, then you get the rest of the lyrical idea. Same with the music. You got a germ of a musical idea, then you get a few words, and then they both progress together. I think yeah. It, you can't ways. separate one without the other. I think so, yeah. I yeah. think, and often you end up with with musical ideas that if you don't get words to them in a hurry, even though you might be really happy with the way this thing goes, if the words don't come, then then it's a bit harder to mm. to get something to them. How important is originality? I mean, it's a, originality is a spectrum, I guess. You know, like, um, is it a spectrum disorder or is it a spectrum? Well benefit nothing is 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 new under the sun mm. so you could say nothing's original but that's silly because some things are more original than others or more unique or more uh, uh, you know, not obviously um derivative than other things 
So how important is originality? Yeah, uniqueness or a point of a point of difference is important, I think. A point of difference or a point of interest. Um, and so That's very different to the idea of originality, isn't it? I don't know if it is. I think it might be a different way of saying the same thing. Because you can always trace something, uh, and, and it, even if something sounds like a new sound or something, you can always find out where it came from. So it's not to never going to be totally original. It might be something you've never heard before or, or done slightly differently. But I mean, you know, musically, I'm not going to do anything that that far beyond whatever's been done before. In fact, I don't know how possible that is, given that we deal with scales and yeah. keys. Yeah. And even if you're moving outside those scales and keys, there's only so many notes you can go to. Yeah. Um, so mathematically, you know, it's, you're not going to come up with two notes that have never been sung in a row before, mm. to that extent. Same with uh, lyrically, and if, you, if you're writing songs that people can relate to, or relate to because they don't relate to it, or what, whatever, you're still, you're still within, and, you, and you're using a language. Using what, unless you're writing, unless you're writing songs in a in a made-up language or something, you know. Oh, like you should do that. <laughs> um, Probably have. How can it be totally original? You didn't, you didn't, you didn't make up that word, and you didn't make up that note. Mm. So it could never, you know, in that sense, it could, mm. and you didn't invent the guitar, no. or you didn't invent the piano, or whatever, you know. Mm. How how original can you be playing an instrument that you didn't invent? You're a fraud. A derivative fraud, all you guitar players out there. That's you know. Well, you look at all the anyone who was great and made their mark didn't necessarily do it because they're doing something totally original. They might might have made their mark because they're doing it really, really well, or they're the best example of whatever was happening. So you know, well, Jimi Hendrix wasn't original. But he Ooh, was... I think he might have been actually. Okay. He, yeah. yeah, he he used that instrument in a very new way, and he he it, it, the part of it's the performance. Like he had he had equipment that wasn't available, you know, a few years before him. Like he had large amplification, he could produce a huge amount of noise that wasn't available in 1965. Yeah, and he had. Um, a Stratocaster guitar that was very versatile and he had a huge depth of knowledge and experience with blues and soul music. Yeah. And he brought all of that together in a way that was a new experience. Oh, sure, sure. I'm not... But that's what I'm saying is that it was, you know, in a way done better than anyone had ever done it. But you said it was a, it's based on blues and soul. His experience yeah, I know, in blues it's a and soul music... I, but, he did have something that I think is original. Uh, and everything is based on something, but he did bring something. Look, I'm going to go on a limb here. I think it's because he had new equipment that wasn't there before, and he used that equipment in a particular way. Okay. In a performance way. So uh, did uh, Eric Clapton, actually, too. No, I mean, they're contemporaries of each other. Eric Clapton was the first person to use, in a recording, a large amplifier, hugely loud, yeah, on yeah. 10. Okay. Well, they're somewhere higher up the spectrum than me. <laughs> no, well, I would still say that nothing is totally original. Mm. Um, so that's what I was saying about being a spectrum. So they might be higher, you know, you could produce arguments in what ways they were original. 
could equally produce arguments and not deriding what they did, but just saying, well, they just did it better than anyone and maybe had some new equipment or something. So, you know. Where do you get your ideas from? I get my ideas from things that interest, subjects that interest me. So they could be experience-based or the experience could be secondary, like something I hear, something Mm. that I read, something that I see. So that you then take somewhere else and, 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 and make a story about, or, you know. How do you get your songs the best they can be? Composition-wise? Just any-wise. You're writing a song, you want it to be at a certain level before you perform it, say, or record it. Yeah. There's composition, then there's arrangement, which is almost like composition. Yeah. It's how, you know, in, in that, that's, that that's what people hear it's as important definitely as important and then there's technical technically being able to do what you want to do or technically having people who can do what you want to do so it's practice practice and recruitment or something so what do you need to do well you need well it depends on which aspect of that you're looking at and and so with the say if you're talking about the songwriting or the lyric you've got to keep honing things and deciding whether you like things or whether you're just getting used to them and accepting them so that's self-criticism and instinct and you know sometimes you get that right and sometimes you get that totally wrong mm. come in love with something you've done that is actually you're in love with the germ of it and but that's not people got no idea what you're talking about or doing there and uh, that would be the same with music you know is this actually interesting or is this just you know something that works in other words it's mediocre and people don't want to hear something that sounds mediocre I don't, I don't anyway you know I want to no. hear something that, that has something going something mm. that, that doesn't just sound like anything else going around so you know whether that's rhythm or melody I mean they're the two things you can play with to make something sound distinctive is, is melody or rhythm you know and arrangements are hard because they're really matters of taste and and having good ideas and sometimes you can get that totally wrong sometimes you can get good ideas and you've got to have and sometimes you need input from other people then to to fill in your you you know come come at things from different ways that's why people jam and come up with lots of good ideas because then it's not just you coming up with them do you jam i'm not big jammer I like rehearsing with other people who improvise mm. around what I you know because mm. I've got the bones of it really and I don't mm. you know unless I was playing bass and then I might be trying to work out bass lines or you know or, or pl- trying to come up with something lead on the guitar but generally I play with other people who are the, who are trying to come come up with new stuff to fit around what I'm doing mm. and then I change to fit around them or whatever but mm. I'm not the most adept jammer do you reckon you're a perfectionist? No, I don't. There are some things that I can be very particular about if I've got an idea what I want or if something I'm good at. I have very can have very high standards, but I'm would be stretching the definition to call me a perfectionist in in lots of aspects of my life, I think. What are creative people are? Perfectionists, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's two sides to creativity. One's in giving things a go. 
you know, being prepared to try things and get outside where you've been or what you've tried before. I'm probably stronger on that than perfectionism. I think I'm stronger at giving things goes. Mm. I mean, perfectionism, I mean, with art, it's funny because it's often the imperfections that are tasteful but that work, you know. Yeah, that's right. So, it's it's the yeah. it's the wacky grain in the piece of wood. Yeah. It's the burl in the piece of wood that yeah, that, that right. looks great. Or it's the it's the interesting voice. Or the it's the it's the distortion on the guitar. Yeah. The right kind of distortion. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you could be a perfectionist about your sound, but your sound itself might be a distortion. Mm. So you know, but it's it's a tasteful. Mm. Um, imperfection mm. so and you know a, a lot of art isn't realism that pe people aren't, aren't interested in a lot and no, uh, some of it's unrealistic yeah. yeah yeah I find in music virtuosity completely boring I f I find yeah 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 if that's all it is yeah if that's all it is yeah so a guitar player that's playing a, a lead with no melodic or something rhythmically interesting is just a sound. Or even if, or even if they are melodic and rhythmically perfect, it it is the imperfections that actually makes it interesting musically. Possibly, I mean, with singing, with voices. Well, I'm a bit. I I don't mind a good voice, but if that's all mm. it is and it's not a good song. I can't mm. handle it. Mm. Like a, a, a someone and someone doing, a, you know, like operatic warblings of nothing. I find very, very disinteresting. Someone singing, mm. someone singing a passionate folk song, I can relate to. And someone with a husky voice or someone with a screech. Yeah, that doesn't matter. That doesn't mm. matter. Mm. If if they've got strong voice or a mm. check out Bob Dylan's voice, hey. Check out Bob Dylan, check out Jimmy Barnes, check out yeah. Shirley Strawn. Yeah, okay. Jimmy Barnes actually is probably a better singer than I think Bob Dylan is, but Bob Dylan's performances are unreal. Okay. They, yeah. they, they, okay, you're saying unreal in a good way? In a good way. Okay. Well, if you look, mm. look at the uh, Newport Folk Festival of 1965 oh, or 64 yeah. or something. He attacks the microphone as if it's an enemy. Yeah. It's so incredible. It's just him, a guitar, and that microphone. Yeah, yeah. Him doing stuff from that era is awesome. Mm. I mean, he did generate as a performer as he stopped caring about that. And he yeah. did, he did obviously worked a lot on his singing, I reckon. Like people who just bag him. I when I watch yeah. stuff from that era you're yeah. talking, I'm saying he's been doing lessons on week, yeah. just the way he's he's, uh, he's articulating it and everything like that. Like he might have not have a sweet voice, but he's worked a lot on his voice at that point, and he spent a lot of time playing guitar at that point as he's well. He spent a lot of time singing songs. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. That's right. My personal opinion is practice is kind of everything, really. And everything is a practice. Okay. So you're practicing, even if you are virtuosic, you need to practice it in all of its sense. I mean, I'm a woodworker, I practice woodworking. Yeah. It's my practice. It's called a practice. Hmm. And I do practice it. Are you compelled to write songs? No. Nobody's compelling me. No, no, in, within yourself. Uh, no, when you're inspired, you, you, 
you, you, you get excited. You get excited about it, and and that's when it's you know you feel well you feel passionate about it. If you're yeah. inspired, you feel you 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 feel excited about the idea yourself and excited about mm. what you're doing. So um, that that's good. when you walk in front of an audience. What brings you most joy? I don't really like performing that much. It's a strange kind of relationship I have with performing. So what brings me joy? You know, if I'm feeling good on the night and and I, and I feel like it's I've got something to you know I'm going to put on a good show for an audience, then it's a bit mutual, you know. Like I'm happy about that. Are you nervous before you get on stage? I wouldn't say so, but there is some level of anxiety there, some kind of suppressed, perhaps nervousness, but not not overtly. No. Mm. Are you excited? No, not often enough. Sounds like you want to be. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, if you're going to do this thing and put yourself on stage, and you know, I actually, you know, you can be quite, in, be quite down on yourself. There's quite a negative side to performing if you're not happy with it and how you did it and yeah. how things happened. So there's a negative payback. So you want to be able to there to be a positive. Otherwise, why are you doing it? So yeah, I'd yeah. like to be excited. Say I'm excited and I enjoy performing, but I don't necessarily always do it. I don't think it's a good thing. How many times a month or a year or a week would you get out there? Not as much as I used to. So I'd, I'd, I'd perform maybe two or three times a month, the yeah, most, right. you know, at the moment. Yeah. And it may even be less, you know. I haven't got any shows coming up in a while, but then I'll do a couple couple in succession. Yeah, yeah. You know? Are they easy to get gigs? I, I'm, I don't, don't try and get as many gigs as I can or anything like I no. just I just so the gigs I get I don't have a problem getting no 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 they're easy for me to get you just ring up somebody and say I want to have a show yeah, yeah, yeah. I can get can get a show when I want a show that's around that same kind of that that's at a level I want to perform I, I because like I was saying I don't necessarily enjoy before I'm not going to perform for the sake of doing a show you know if I'm going to do a show, I want it to be a good show for me and a good show for people who can be bothered showing up. Otherwise, why do they show up the next time? So you want to make sure you've got a place where there's reasonable sound and a comfortable place for the audience to watch it from and, and that they can hear you properly. Otherwise, it just becomes demoralising for them and for you, you know? That's a problem with, I think, for a lot of musicians is that you've got to, you've got to show yourself in a good light when you're doing a performance and you've got... You know, you can't just rock up to some shed in the middle of nowhere and expect it to be a good time for everyone. You've got to get mm. good gigs and good places uh, mm. as soon as possible and then limit, your, limit yourself to this rather than doing as many shows, many average shows as you can, which was bad as philosophy. Just do every show that ever come up. Did it work for him? Well, it did in a way. Like, there's a pro and a con, like, to get your name out there and to get seen by as many mm. people as possible, but, you, you know, you end up diluting your audiences. You know that bands that when they start to have success pretty quick get a manager and they they manage what kind of shows they do and what they don't and what kind of venues they play and what they don't and how they're built so it's always you know hopefully on an upward trajectory yeah strategic as opposed to just scattergun yeah and yeah. Pl- yeah it's not scattergun yeah so it's thought about it's planned and they don't there are places that they played earlier that they just don't do anymore you know? mm. once you get to a certain level you don't do that on, mm. on music level. and live music has changed radically over the last sort of 10-15 years hey yeah yeah 
I think being a musician would be a much more difficult prospect than it was in the 1990s than it is in the 2000 and anything. Yeah, well, we only we only know of the the bands that that came out of those glory years of when music was more important. You only hear of the successes. So a lot of bands probably running around. Yeah, but a lot of bands did play in venues and they did make a little bit of a living. Okay, we might not know them. They're faded into obscurity. But there was a potential to have a little bit of a following and you could sell an album or two here or there. Yeah, yeah. And nowadays nobody's buying albums. Yeah, yeah. There was a bigger pull. Music was more important. Yeah. And it's a bit of a catch-22, I think, because... This music becomes less important, then less people are attracted to it. They take the talent sales. Well, yeah, yeah, I do, I do. And so the standard of music drops. Mm. So less people. So if you've got a stronger perception of of a well-organised local music scene, then when if you go out, you're going to have a good night and see a good show. Then you're going to go out. If the local music scene isn't well organised and the musicians themselves aren't well organised and well rehearsed and put on average shows and average venues, then why should people go out and see that? Like people talk about supporting local music. People have no obligation to support local music. People go out to have a good time and to watch good music. And to socialise. Yeah, that's that's enabling. That's not supporting. It's up to bands and musicians to put on good shows and take their shows seriously rather than... being you're talking about perfectionism before Mm. right okay so yeah there is an element of me which people might find hard to believe given some of the shows i've done over the years but yeah i do believe that you don't do just a gig and you don't you don't say oh that gig doesn't matter or whatever we did this or that i I do think you've got to if you don't take yourself seriously and get up and put up a performance that's try and put up a, a captivating performance and then why would anyone come out and see it? Like, mm. what's in it for them? And like so I was saying, all right, sound's important. And some of these things that can be out of the control, apparently out of the control of musicians, but you want to try and control that kind of stuff. That 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 is going to mean that your show doesn't show you in the best light. Because if you, if you play at a place and people can't hear you, of course they're going to talk. Why would you not talk when you can't even hear it in the first place? And then that's a catch-22 and it rolls. So mm. you, you've got to be good at being heard and putting yourself in places where people are more likely to listen to you rather than going to places where you're going to be anonymous in the corner of a front bar and nobody's going to listen to you. Unless you're good enough to go in there and win over a front bar, that's great if you can do that. It's pretty hard because the culture is... I don't think music is as important in our culture. I think it's... And I think there's a whole lot of reasons for that. What about arts and crafts? Would you put them all in one big category and say that we're lacking a bit in our culture? Uh, Probably. I haven't thought about it a lot. But everything has become a commodity and uh, consumed. So things do get squashed into, into being commodities rather than being crafts or art. So I think that's part of what happened to music. I think what happened... I'll talk about what I think I know about. Mm. I think music became... At one stage, artists were, the artists were revered and people didn't know, like, you know, when's Henry Dixon Clapton or what, you know, well, these people have free reign and this, the Beatles have free reign. Do what, wear what you want and do some Hare Krishna songs, whatever. It's not our place to tell you. Whereas now you've got all these A&R guys and 
producers and that trying to second guess what's going to sell and that just turns music into rubbish because these people aren't artists or they'd be out writing their own songs it's like they're you know professional critics and improvers of songs and they actually end up just um, ruining whatever was original in a song to make it sound like whatever is whatever is going down and i imagine that kind of thing could happen with other activities you know. yeah music is often a little bit more affordable than art so it has a broader appeal it's not like anybody can go and buy a Picasso painting but everyone could go and buy a Jimi Hendrix album what advice would you give to young musicians or performers do your scales do you spend more time on your scales than your Facebook yeah fuck yeah I agree with that actually yeah, same with woodworking and art generally. Like, get that practice. Yeah, yeah. Having said that, all right, yeah, I would, I would actually advocate that, doing scales, but play your instrument, learn your instrument, whether, it, you know, if it's not only, it shouldn't only be scales, like, learn as much as you can, immerse yourself in whatever interests you and styles interest you once you've got those basics down so you can take take absorb all that stuff so i do think the standard of musicianship is is, is uh, way down on what it was in in the glory days of rock and roll because i don't think people spend enough time playing like i think maybe the post grunge people people stop playing licks and riffs and it's all um chord based playing and which I, I know I'm a chord player but I don't see the the Ian Mosses out there anymore I, don't, not I think Ian, Ian Moss is a bit of an outlier though he's pretty amazing he is amazing but so were the guys in there's a lot of bands in, in well Ian Moss is at the top end yeah. but the, so the guys in Midnight Oil are also up there oh look far out yeah absolutely so I don't see the equivalent of those guys hmm or maybe we just don't know them because of the way the the way the whole the whole system works these days. Or maybe we're just not fans of the music that's selling or popular. Or well, that's possible too. Um, obviously, there's stuff I don't hear, and obviously there's stuff that maybe just isn't going to be to my taste. But I do think it's been dumbed down a bit. I think it's been. I think the attitude of bands is back to what you're saying about practice. Everything being practice. It used to be a long way to the top. Now it's can we get us get this thing played on Triple J? And if we can get it played on Triple J, then it's been played around the whole nation, and 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 we've made it. Not we have to tour the whole nation three times, mm. and then try and get a record deal. And then by the time mm. we got the record deal, we can play, and we always split up. But there was a there was a lot more processes people had to go to mm. and now you've got those um talent quests on tv the 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 voice, yeah, the voice yeah. australia's got talent or whatever whatever so that's obviously the farcical side of it anyway so there's a whole series of them now some of that might be the more farcical side of oh i want to be famous so you know jump jump a few steps to a national profile but i actually do see triple j as being the same kind of thing process same mentality let mm. download some things, get this, somehow get the hits up, somehow somehow do that. And, mm. and partly, all right, the scene's not there anymore. But the scene's not there anymore because the way people do it's it, do such it. A re- it's such a catch-22 thing. Triple J is a radio station run by the ABC here in Australia. It's a national youth-orientated radio station that yeah. you would hope would be playing mostly new music. 
That's true. It's playing new music, but does the but does the music get the music is selected by like a panel of people who selected it, who are there for the purveyors of taste for a whole nation, yeah. rather than that music getting to a level of popularity that it can't be ignored by a record company or a radio station or whatever. So there's there's one thing about all of the really big bands from the golden era that you're talking about. Beatles, Jimi Hendrix, Rolling Stones, Van Halen, ACDC, they played all the time at lowly venues, worked up, worked up, but they were playing all the time for years. All of them. They really honed their chops as performers before their fame. Yeah, yeah. They really knew what they were doing. Yeah. And the... Cold Chisel? Oh, exactly. I've read all those gigs yeah. that those bands played. Now, the thing Midnight is... Oil. Yeah, and they yeah. used to be able to. That's the thing. Like, we're saying they're lowly venues, but they used to play down at the Finden or they used to play at the Peterborough or whatever because people would go. Like, pubs don't put on... Rock and roll Rock and roll shows. nobody's if nobody comes. It's because <laughs> there was a culture of going out to sing and people were yeah. excited by music. Now, whether that's, you know, it's past its... It's age of popularity. Maybe it's just a heap easier to go and see. You can see music easier on YouTube, for instance, but also you can listen to any music you like on YouTube or Spotify. Yeah, I think it started to die even before all that, though. I think, you know, they used to run the pokies, so they put the pokies in and therefore there's no bands. You know, there was, I think, started to go before that. But to me, though, in the, whenever it was, 70s and 80s, like bands like Midnight Oil and Cold Chisel had no respect for Countdown <laughs> because they saw it as being too powerful in yeah. deciding the taste of music and dictating and being powerful, right? And that's kind of revered that all these bands didn't go on that. It was too powerful, this ABC program going around. It was on for an hour twice a week. Like they had it on Saturday and Sunday or Friday and Sunday or whatever. And all right, people, and people used to go and watch it, and it was important. I used to watch it. It was great. So did I. It was great. Yeah. But Triple J is 24 hours around the country. So if, if there was potential for Molly Meldrum to have too much say in what everyone liked and, and be setting the trends and, and for counting, if there's any truth in that, if there's 10% truth in that, then that's got to be multiplied many, many times for, uh, for the power that Triple way J... way more than 10% mm. truth in that. I mean, you know, the countdown was important okay well then yeah and molly melbourne personally was very important so then you've got people who don't uh trying to second guess what the youth of australia want on triple j and i do think there's a lot of political ideological um questions that come into it that aren't necessarily based on you know it's arts administrations type stuff but it's not the artists they're out doing it and um I just think it's all been dumbed down by that. I think that mm. I think that is uh, infrastructure or whatever. But but then the scenes died as well. It's it's all catch twenty two. Yeah. People will go and see someone that's been on You're the Voice. Like you can you know if you've been on You're the Voice and you put on a show, there's the people who will go and see that, and people will go and see something because it's a Triple J recognised act, which means if you're not, therefore it's going to be harder to build up your audience at the base level. It still happens. Then Triple J will find you. So, what do you, what's the advice for a, a performer who's wanting to get into the game? Oh, uh, back to this. Back to what you actually asked. What's my advice? Play, pra- spend, 
Yeah, practice. But get good at what you're doing. All right, so there's several things about it. Well, I, I think a lot of people don't write good songs. Yeah. Now, if you're, if that's your, if that's what you're doing, you're a band and you're going to be an original singer-songwriter and not a cover band, then you've got to be getting a lot more serious about your songs, songwriting. And I don't know if it's something everyone can do or just some people have not had someone be critical enough early on and say that's a mundane song, they're mundane lyrics, a mundane tune, a mundane progression, and it's. And it's not an inter- it's not interesting, does it? It's yeah. not a, you know, or, or you writing a song about how your grandmother was a strong woman, isn't necessarily a, a good idea, you know. Like there's a lot of, no, it could be. You can write a song about anything, but you got to find a good way to do it. And people, yeah. there's it seems to be a lot of kind of introspective, self-referential, yeah, 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 stuff. So, so when you said asked earlier, was there someone who's influenced me? I was thinking of a few people that had. One, one of those people actually said when I was a teenager at high school writing poetry, and everyone thought it was great because the only one who did. She said, "This woman said to me, said, just because it's words doesn't mean it's poetry, right? You know, it's a bit like anything mm. can be art, anything can be poetry. There's got to be something poetic about it. You know, there's got to be something interesting. Everything, you know, you're just writing down or you." She didn't say this, but writing down your adolescent troubles, you know, thoughts. That, that's not poetry, you know. You've got to actually be critical about what you're writing and write something of a standard that rises above just text of words yeah. and thoughts. Thoughts aren't poetry. They've got to be written in a special way. So it's got to have a spe- special idea, an interesting idea, or special use of words that says something in an interesting way. You know, catch, expresses an emotion or does something. It can't just be, it can't just be words. So, and it's the same with music. In that, just because it's got you know a chord progression that sits together and a, a melody that fits those chords, that's not a, ch- a good tune, and that's not a good a good structure for a song. So, mm. I would advise people to take more time looking at their songwriting and mm. and trying to find something that makes it different or interesting that makes it poetical or makes it musical what makes it musical is that there's got to be got to be something striking about it rhythmically or melodically rhythmically well, I, I, they're the two things I can mm. break it down into mm. you know there's and preferably mix of both you know yeah during the whole song it's pretty clear for me that the common thread amongst the bands and the performers that we were talking about did do a lot of practicing they did do a lot of performing right across whatever country they came from and internationally too like the Beatles were in Germany in Hamburg for a couple of years and they did really work on their songs they really did work on their songs like that was something that they concentrated on a song, not just a piece of guitar, not just a singing voice, an entire song. Yeah well they had a really good understanding of how songs worked because mm. they started as a cover band so they learned a lot of songs and that's when i was talking about doing the scales it immerse yourself in and doing it. and i did do didn't do that i started writing original songs before i knew just jump straight in jump straight in yeah, yeah. whereas you'd be drive much, a speed car before driving the corolla at them. yeah you'd be much better off knowing how other songs worked mm. i reckon you could extrapolate this into pretty much any art or craft my advice along these lines would be 
if you wanted to make furniture for instance learn cut a dovetail but don't use it you know just keep cutting 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 we're just cutting a straight line for christ's sake a hundred times and then like get your hand plane out and just plane something a million times get used to it so when you're going to when you're going to go and apply that you don't have to think about that particular activity you just go and use that activity it doesn't become the end result it becomes just the way you do it and learn how people put things together in the old in days we do have new technologies now but not really we have got new glues which are amazing which 100 years ago weren't available the same as we've got new instruments now that weren't available 100 years ago electric guitar synthesizers blah 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 but i think across art forms music painting sculpture woodworking ceramics practice 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 and get it out there see what people like hone it put your own soul in it to it as well but just keep working it work it work it work it mm. so do you think some of the new technologies actually are counterproductive in terms no. of no 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 technology is counterproductive or, have a or can potentially have a negative effect? No, there's no, no technology can have a negative effect or a positive effect. It all depends on how you use it. So if you've got... Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So if you've got a synthesizer, why can't somebody with a synthesizer make amazing music? Does it have to be an acoustic guitar or a violin? No, it can, you can make amazing music on a synthesizer. Sure. And you only have to look at Jean-Michel Jarre's Oxygen album. Yeah, yeah, no doubt, no doubt about that as an instrument if it's used well and tastefully or whatever. Yeah, and in woodwork, say, you can use it. I'd love to have a CNC machine. I'd love it. It would free me up. I'd be able to put a piece of wood in there and I could push a button and it'd go... Okay. And I'd get a component. I'd love it. There's no good or bad with technology. It all depends on how what imagination you've got to utilise that to get an outcome that you want to achieve. Yeah. I just think that um, digital recording, which you know exploded, you know, twenty years ago or whatever, mm. you know, I guess, and that's in the hands of people who perhaps got too enamoured with it, wasn't good for music, like you know, use of click tracks and. Um, yeah. Okay. So if you there's on the out there on the interwebs, you can get a complete mix of superstition where every track is broken down hmm. and if you have a listen to the really famous horn riff in that it's pretty much all over the joint you wouldn't you, when you listen to the whole mix yeah it's really tight but if you listen to that individual track yeah it's really kind of all over the place and that's sort of the organic flavor that i think you're talking about hey yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I just think that breaking music down into that type of... It's what we were talking about before with perfection versus what's interesting and that sometimes what's interesting artistically isn't, you know, the sanitised um, thing. I mean, you want, you want a song to be apparently in time. That's what drummers are for. But a lot of those things, they're not. No, no, true, true. They're not. They're not in time in the same way that a machine does it yeah. because you're not listening to a machine yeah. so a drum it should be in time enough anyway play, there's nothing wrong with playing to a click track in a certain context but if then you if you're doing it so therefore you can the producer can cut and paste things and then yeah yeah that's not that's not i don't i think that that using excess isn't a good thing 
and and once again it means that musicians don't have to play things properly because they mm. can't paste and edit them digitally that kind of concept yeah. so you're talking about all right sing this thing oh, if you can't sing it well pitch pitch change yeah, we'll, is we'll a good good example pitch of that change it. yeah the very famous Eddie Van Halen solo in beat it was three different solos cut and pasted together okay it right. wasn't one solo yeah so yeah okay and that would have been done probably not digitally maybe analog it would have been analog. i didn't know eddie van halen played the yeah guitar it's song. very fun beat it okay. for sure yeah that's yeah. his that's like the number one guitar solo of all time oh, <laughs> at the moment i have to listen to it yeah anyway it was it was three yeah, yeah three yeah. separate solos cut and pasted together I don't have a problem with that. Neither um, do I. It's but but then, but then okay. So you, if there's three different bits Mind put you, together, Quincy Jones was a master producer. That's right. But but there's a difference between cutting out three uh, significant sized sections and maybe crossfading and putting them together than digitally mucking around with every bar and every single note. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And reconstructing something that was never played to make it perfect yeah. as opposed to having it sounding awesome yeah 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 which is kind of where we're coming from i think in this conversation is that perfect is not what we're trying to achieve we want to achieve excellence and excellence can be imperfect yeah well it depends on your definition of perfect doesn't it like you know <laughs> perfectly <laughs> imperfect yeah I mean, see, the other thing is you say, right, you've done this, you've done this. The producer could say, can you play it again and play this bit, this bit, and this bit? Now, that's the way I would say, not, I'm not telling Eddie Van Halen how to do it or whatever, but say, and as an example, and play that again, and then that's a cracker solo, rather than, I oh, don't worry about it, I'll take bits from this take, this yeah. take, this take, and mash it together. But then that ends up becoming you, 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 you're putting together something you could never even play because mm. you have, because you can't be bothered because you get someone else to fix up your rubbish. I think this is the way, especially when session musicians came into the studio, which was fairly, uh, and still is, really, really common. Yeah. The session muse will play that solo and then the musician that's going to be in the band has to go and learn that. I think it's pretty common. May not be your songs. Yeah, I don't. But in a more commercial sphere, I think it would be fairly common. I don't know much about session musicians. Some of them are great, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> They'd have to be, otherwise they wouldn't get booked. Yeah. What's your top three albums you'd take to a desert island? Ah, goodness gracious. I'd take three things. I'm going to actually listen to these things. That's all you've got. Maybe for a week. To remember my culture by. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon I'd take, all right, maybe take a Red Hot Chili Peppers album. Yeah. Um, Which one? Uh, Californication, that'll do. Uh, Highway 61, revisited by Bob Dylan. Yeah. And maybe take, take some Midnight Oil, take some Beatles, I don't know, take some, take, um, Oh, no, I can't have a beer listen to Midnight Oil on a desert island. I don't know if I could beer listen to anything on a desert fucking island. Yeah. It's a pretty, like, yeah. you, you want to have some, uh, you want to have something different as well, you know. You did listen to it three times and then you could catch a fish anymore. with it. Yeah. yeah. Do you know, it's an interesting thing, but I reckon I would take something by Thomas Tallis. I don't know who that is, no. so I didn't pick that. 
No, Thomas Tallis died about three billion years ago. He was a British... Um, British? Yeah, I think so. Came from England. Choral music from 1500s or something. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just so beautiful. Really simple. Yeah, yeah. I reckon I could listen to that again and again and again and again. Yeah. As opposed to something... I, I could totally take a Midnight Oil song, a Midnight Oil album. I could totally take um, a Led Zeppelin, Rolling Stones. I could probably take some dance music, Trenton Mola. I can could take. I don't know if you know that dude. He's awesome. Like that's now. He's still, you know, doing it. It's a hard one. Yeah, I mean, I can think of lots. Obviously, you can think of more than three things that you like, you know, and that that can be different. I didn't know if I wanted to represent all the different kind of things I listen to or... What other new challenges coming up for you? Well, the challenges came up for me. I want to record some more songs. Cool. And I've got five songs I'm trying to record that I haven't recorded before. Are you going to do it here in your land room? Nah, nah. I'm going to go to a studio. Yeah. And uh, I've got a few musicians in mind I want to record it with. Yeah. I've been playing with um, Emma Luca, the violinist. I've been playing with her for a long time. Yeah. But I've also got a, a bass player and second guitarist that I've been working with. And I want to, if I can get them all to work together and record it so that it has the same sound. A lot of my records have different sounds because I record them with different people in different places. And um, it's one thing I'm, they're not, maybe not cohesive as a record. Although you don't want a record to sound the same either, which is a problem I think some people end up with. But but a similar sound with different kind of songs, so it's, you can listen to it as a as a record, you know, as a as that moment. This is the sound for that record. So that's a challenge because it involves working with three other people and their schedules and a, a studio, which and, you got to pay for. Yeah. The way I like to record nowadays is basically live. Record as much of it at the same time as you can and then perhaps have some a few different pieces recorded over it. Do you do the drums first, though? Oh, this doesn't want to have drums. Yeah. So we'll have... Um, you have a click track. No. <laughs> I'll joking. It'll have me, me and a bass player, second guitarist yeah. and a violin. It's probably all playing together. I've yeah. recorded with a band without a click track, like a full-on rock band, and it's, it's the way you, it's like like you play it with practice when it sounds good at a practice, and you're all playing together. That's yeah. what you record. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any hobbies? No. Oh, I grow I grow plants. I guess that's not my job, but it's kind of related to my job. I grow I grow native seedlings. Mm. I bushwalk. I guess it's a hobby. I guess yeah. so it's, it's a pastime. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I have a problem that my hobbies end up becoming relating to my work like for a while I felt like everything was my work yeah my, I was doing beekeeping and then beekeeping became like yeah. an obligation or you start monetizing these things sharing them around at the very least if they're not monetized yeah for a while I was made a point of playing tennis once a week as a hobby yeah right that lasted for a few years, actually, but yeah. I'm not doing it anymore. It's no good yeah. for my body. So it was inhibiting my ability to do my work. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> With my beekeeping, my, my other stuff. So yeah, yeah, I, I'm I'm interested in plants. I like bushwalking and looking at plants, and I like growing native plants from seed. So 
that's not really monetized. I don't really sell that. So I give away a lot of plants or, um, you know, at one stage I had an idea that perhaps I could have a native nursery, but there are people who do that for a job who do that a lot better. So I enjoy going out and collecting seed and propagating it myself for my own reasons and maybe something that I can't get somewhere else. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? Oh, that's a good one. I didn't read that question. <laughs> if I can, I can have a superpower, well, obviously what you don't say is go back in time and change things or you just muck things up in a totally different way. <laughs> that's the, you know... I think time travel would be a pretty awesome superpower. Yeah. Even if it was a few, few seconds. Okay, so what are superpowers? Invisibility is a superpower. Yep. Ability to fly is a superpower. That would be one, yeah. Um, Under your own steam, you can't use a... Yeah, 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 not getting yeah. a plane. Yeah. I reckon if I could do anything, yeah, I reckon ability to fly would be pretty cool. It'd be pretty cool. Yeah, I reckon I'd choose ability to fly. I, what I don't like about... I'm, I'm having a superpower at Supernatural anyway. I don't like the idea of being able to go back and, and change things, even though, of course, there are things you regret and you wish you didn't say that, you didn't do that. Because that's, that's, that's. But you wouldn't even do it like that. You'd do that for a little bit and then you'd start to be a bit broader, I reckon, if you could go back and change stuff. Uh, you'd want to go and. Save Jesus. <laughs> you'd save Jesus. Stop Hitler. You'd take a photograph of him. Stop Hitler. Stop, you'd totally stop Hitler. Stop Kurt Cobain. Killing himself, you reckon? And the idea of being visible is creepy. You know, going around and being able to see mm. see things and other people not see you. That's voyeuristic or, mm. you know, it sneaky. And I don't like that. Mm. That's why the idea of flying seems to me to be the most coolest thing. Because if that's all you can do, like, you're not, you, you know, it's not that you can go and start a fight and no one can hurt you. Like, psychopath that's invincible or you can sneak up on people and eavesdrop on conversations. But if you could just... You know, be going somewhere for a walk and then suddenly you don't need a drone. You just go for a fly around and have a look at the valley or, you know, and get a good view. You know, you get a good view. I reckon that'd be all right. I reckon it'd be cool as, apart from being so much fun, just the ability to use very little energy to get places would be pretty amazing, wouldn't it? When the apocalypse comes, are you going to have any useful skills? Yes. Yeah. I'm going to be able to find water. Yeah. I'm not going to tell you how. <laughs> the divining rod. <laughs> I'm going to be able to go down in my bunker. <laughs> Which you've been doing. I'm going to be able to defend it. Yeah, with the gun. <laughs> yeah. I think I would probably end up being as hopeless as anybody. You've got camel skills. But I do think I do have some skills, bush skills or doing things rough skills or some... some um, some ideas about some of that stuff but I, don't, I think ultimately no I don't think I'd so yeah I do think we have some skills but realistically it's the apocalypse a lot of people have got a lot of skills I'm not a doctor you know I won't have as many skills as a doctor mm. doctor would be a pretty important person a doctor would be the sort of person that whoever had the survival skills would want to keep safe yeah, don't eat the doctor first. Don't eat the doctor first. You eat the doctor last. No, just don't eat the doctor at all. Being a doctor would be... You You would end up being a slave, I reckon. Just off the top of my head here. To right. the doctor? No, the doctor would be no. the commodity. doctor would be the wife. <laughs> Probably. So, some people might say that think the same thing in this context. Yeah, I don't know. I don't Look even... after the doctor. Look after the doctor is what you would do. I don't think the doctor would be necessarily a leader. Be too busy being a doctor. Wouldn't no, I reckon they would. 
be scary. Well, in 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 the in the context of a, an apocalypse, who does end up being the leader? The alpha male. Okay, is that what you reckon? The strongest, the toughest, the more ruthless. So, from a negative point of view, or is there some positives in that? Well, I just don't think it's either positive or negative. I think there's just the nature of the way things work. The strongest and the toughest and the most immune to pain and the one who can endure the most and who's totally ruthless would be the one to survive. Not the one with the best ideas? Impossible. Yeah, there you go. And the one who has the best ideas too, the whole, the whole thing. As long as they're ruthless and enduring. Yeah, maybe that you could take one of those characteristics out. I reckon if you looked at any leader anywhere, look at our leaders now, they're all pretty ruthless, I reckon, and they endure. They may not be physically adept, they probably aren't, but they don't have to be. So maybe if we take, if we extrapolate from our leaders now, I've heard it said that they're psychopaths. Yeah, I don't think I'd end up being a leader. Neither would I. Um, I, don't, I don't even think I'd want to. But no, 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 and that wasn't your question. But, and it's not a matter of whether, you, whether I would want to or not. I just wouldn't see that the way it would be working. In fact, like most people, when there's an apocalypse, you'd end up being quite vulnerable unless you're a doctor. You still <laughs> might be vulnerable. I think the doctor would be one of the most vulnerable. They would be the one that would be traded and they'd be looked after, but they wouldn't have... At least in the early stages. I'm just making this up as I go along. I've got You've never been to an apocalypse idea. before? No, man. Only in my personal life. I've had an apocalypse there, but not as a whole society failing sort of activity. <laughs> a whole society failing. The thing that you need to be able to do in an apocalypse is do it tough. Like, be able to do it tough. And I do think some people have led such, uh, like, uh, domesticated lives with no exposure to anything you know it like, would be hard yeah, yeah. That, I mean I don't think I've ever done it really tough but I'm, I know when I go camping people <laughs> what are you doing <laughs> where's the TV you did drive uh, Mazda 323 into the bush yeah well that, that's just a car yeah I know but it's like that car was not coming home Oh, that car did come home. It might not have the second time or after I went to Darwin and also yeah. through the bush. That did, the car did come home. It did its paid its juice. Yeah. Some people think you need a um, four-wheel drive to go to Woolworths, and uh, you don't. This is true. Yeah. You don't need a four-wheel drive to go out bush. That, and black fellas don't have four-wheel drives. Well, they didn't traditionally. I mean, they like them now, but they used yeah. to work, they drive cars. And all right, their cars end up getting smashed to pieces, but... The reason you need a four-wheel drive in a lot of these places now is because it's driven by four-wheel drive people who dig the thing up and you can't go on a two-wheel drive anymore. But four-wheel drives are new inventions, you know. Mm. They, cars didn't used to be four-wheel drives and they used to drive, drive everywhere. Mm. But you try driving out to Dalhousie Springs now where they go across the Simpson, they're four-wheel drives. And it is impossible to go on a two-wheel drive, and I tried, because they've just smashed the roads up full of corrugations, and they smash their four-wheel drives up. They smash them in half because they don't drive to the conditions. You can do a lot in a two-wheel drive if you drive to the conditions, mm. you know, and don't try and drive at 100 on a dirt road. You might have to drive at 60 or 40 on a dirt road. But I went to a party up at Petuta. I had a friend at Petuta. It's near Birdsville. 
went up my Honda Accord, didn't have a flat tire, drove all the way up, all the way back, no flat tire, no, no nothing, right? People driving up to this same party in their, in their four-wheel drive spent more money on tires than I spent on my car. And they were angry because <laughs> they're driving up this track at 120 over straight towards rocks and smashing the hell out of it because they don't realize hang on we're out we're not driving up mm. the bitumen road mm. you know so they got there quick well they didn't, they got there quicker but yeah they they also got there slower because they just stopped and fixed yeah. their tires their thousand dollar tires all the time <laughs> what's the best decision you ever made the best decision i've ever made ever yeah, uh, going up to the pitch in Jarrahlands is the first thing that comes to mind. That was a good decision, I reckon. It certainly yeah. did change the way I see things. How did it change that? Well, it's a different culture up there. You've got, you got two worlds up there. You've got the white world and the black world, and so it was an eye-opener. And just a great experience to be out there and see that. And this is years ago, too. Things have changed there change as well because it's a whole new generation and so there's generational change up there. Oh, just things came from that I guess, I guess that's the way it changed it, like that in itself you could isolate but because I did that then I did camel racing, then I got my camel then I did this, then I've travelled, then I've done that, then I've written these songs, then I've met these other people, so it's it's, you could trace a lot of things back to that a few probably other landmark things you could do the same to like to see exponentially or the ripple in the pond and what's what's come of that yeah it's almost like a fork in the road from there everything comes what's the hardest decision you ever made i can't think of anything that was hard <laughs> just flow and go with the flow <laughs> i can't i can't think of any i mean i've had made decisions and they weren't fun at the time but you know it's not like it was you know, a, a choice, do I do this, do I do that? Sometimes you have to do that, though. You have a decision to make, but it has to be made. Quite often, perhaps there isn't a decision to make, so it's something you just have to do, You've got, but you have to decide, I am going to do that now, I'm going to accept that responsibility, and I'm going to do what needs to be done. I'm trying to think of something I've done that has really upset someone. <laughs> Because that's what, you know, like whether, you know... It, was... it could have been upsetting for you, maybe. You made a decision that was hard for you. I mean, that's as opposed to somebody else. Well, I'd find that hard to make a, deci to make a decision, like to be ruthless towards someone else, like kick them out of the band or that kind of... I'm trying yeah. to think of an example of that. Yeah. I know I've kind of done things like that before, but none's jumping up in my... What about, have you ever made a bad decision? Oh, I made heaps of... Heaps of errors of judgment. Yeah, 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 yeah. Are they? Do they turn out to be good things in the long run? No. Otherwise, I wouldn't. You know, like, like you can always put a positive slant on them, or or see a positive that came out of it, or you know, or it's not the end of the world anyway. That's probably more likely. You can say, all right, we did that. Maybe that's an experience, or maybe that's something you learn from. The worst things are when you don't learn from your mistakes, or you've done the same thing, or you, or or maybe you didn't realise it was a mistake. So you can't say you didn't learn from a mistake because you didn't realise at the time. You know, if you realise it, then that's stupid. But mm. if if then you look back and you go, oh, that's a whole pattern. That's a whole pattern of things I got wrong once you realise. That's like, I did this three times, four times, whatever. 
So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm unhappy with some of the recordings, maybe, you know, records I've made, you know, ways I've done them. But at least I did them, at least they're out there and, you know, so you could put a positive slant on it. But no, if you hadn't made, if you'd done things better at the time, it would have been a better result. I don't think, I don't think generally good things come out of bad decisions. But definitely don't if you don't learn from it or if it is a pattern mm. and you don't, don't acknowledge the fact that you've got a pattern you don't try and change it up. Have you ever been in a really bad headspace and how did you get yourself out of it? Yeah, yeah, I've been in what you'd say was bad headspaces, you know. And how do you get yourself out of it? I think activity is one thing. That's what I do. I try and... Now, you could see that almost as being like um, subterfuge, <laughs> like just, you know, keep busy and don't think about it. But also, I, on the positive side, I see that as um, trying to do positive things and get a positive routine going that hopefully you can start enjoying and get out of what a, a bad headspace you're in, you know? Because I, I do think we are really creatures of habit or routine. It's a bit like you were talking about uh, practicing and whatever that's routine and habit. you see you can be in really good routines and habits and and society loves you when you do when you, you know, dress well keep things clean or sharp to work on time and there are a lot of things that are good good routines and habits to be in and equally you can be in bad routines and habits mm. so if you're in a bad headspace it's probably something to do with you you know you're probably wallowing it and yeah. and reinforcing it either through your activities and your actions like keeping yourself in that position or not I don't know I don't know I'm not I don't have an answer to these problems obviously but that's how I try and get out of it was try and get myself out of that situation that's putting me in a bad headspace and not not by running away from it but by hopefully some kind of structural change or activity change about how I'm, how you're doing things uh, if you can identify what if you can identify a thing you know by facing up to it it's probably the best way and changing that aspect it's always complicated sometimes it's not just identifying and facing up to something it might be just a chemical imbalance or something i'm not going to get into a philosophical discussion about it Apart from to say lots of people have depression or anxiety for all sorts of different reasons. and Yeah. I guess what I'd see though is that those, without once again being, you know, getting too philosophical, no, well, this is a philosophical, this is a different, this is a way of looking at that, is that your, your chemistry or whatever that's triggering good thoughts or bad thoughts, you know, which is ultimately that's the way they analyze it they analyze good thoughts and happy thoughts is caused by these chemicals that's why they can you know people can take ecstasy and have good thoughts is because somehow i don't know how it works it makes you feel these things and the psychology of poker machines or facebook or whatever is designed to trigger little little good thoughts you know because it's routine so on the flip side negative things are probably triggering negative things or failing to trigger your good stuff so if you can find activities that trigger the good stuff by mechanistically you know changing your life to make you to make you have more positive thoughts and more positive things rather than thinking 
oh, it's a chemical balance caused by chemicals. Well, yeah, the chemicals are caused by how you live in your life, you know. Like, there are good reasons to be unhappy, you know. That's your, that's, that's your mind saying, maybe you shouldn't be friends with this person. Maybe you shouldn't be eating food and watching boring television all day, you know. Like, if, that, if you're feeling unhappy and you're... And because you're unhappy, you're eating junk food and watching television 10 hours a day. I'd say, yeah, try and find something else to do with your time and find, and that will make you feel happier, you know. Mm. You know, like if you can clean your room, go for a walk and start feeling good about yourself, you can start feeling good about yourself. And you could easily argue that's chemical, like that that by doing those things, you're triggering other things. And, and then if that becomes your habit, your positive habits, then you might get a more positive headspace. Whereas if you keep doing the negative things, you're going to be in a negative headspace. So mm. That's an exa- a value-laden example, but yeah, that's how I see. If you could go back and give advice to yourself as a young person, what mm. would it be? And do you think you'd listen? I wouldn't listen. And but no, the, realistically, if someone explained something to me well. And presumably, I'd like to think if I was going go to go to the trouble to go back and give myself advice, I would try and explain it well. Rather than just said, "It's up to you. Do this or not. Take it or leave it." If someone did a take it or leave it and telling you what to do, no, you might not listen. But if someone actually had a good explanation as to how this works, then you might take it on board. Or at least with me, I find I might not initially take it on board, but then you find it influences you and you take bits of it on board and then you develop your own way of seeing it. I mean, you don't usually take on something on board in the instance. But if it makes sense and you take a bit of it on board, then it's like a foot in the door for taking on a bit more of it later or working stuff out yourself. And what would that advice be? Like... One thing I think about the way I've lived my life is I haven't cared too much about what other people have thought about the way I look or the way other people's judgments because I was kind of thinking, well, people shouldn't judge other people and, you know, I'm going to do what I want to do. And I've realised that, well, it doesn't quite work like that. Mm. So I could see a positive to that way of looking at the world. I could see heaps of positives to that, but I think I've kind of undermined my own... um, undermine myself a bit by pushing that Mm. adopting that myself like not at various times not being aware about how i might come off across to other people yeah that's interesting isn't it you we want to be as authentic as we possibly can and that doesn't mean trying to make yourself something that you're not you can dress whichever way you like that's all cool but if you're forcing something, deliberately forcing yourself to dress down or not, you know, to push that idea into somebody's face, then that's not fully authentic. True, yeah. I don't know if I ever did that. Mm. Um, that exactly... I'm just trying to extrapolate from the idea of what you... Yeah, but that, uh, that would work that way. Yeah, that'll do. That'll do. That's an, an answer. It's not that'll the go. definitive... Yeah. what I would actually go back to it's but, good yeah. to hear that you'd, you'd probably try and listen hey you know you'd, you'd give it a shot you try and explain to your younger self in a way that your younger self could actually take it on board and your younger self would probably try and take it on board to some extent yeah well I mean I guess that's also just how you you, um, you would 
if you did have some advice to give someone else about something, you'd be very... Um, but this is advice to yourself. This is my, I know this is advice to myself, but it's the same. Like if you, if you actually have something that you think someone could benefit from, it's very confronting to go up and tell... I wouldn't do it. If, <laughs> it's the tough love thing. Like do you... Can be. Do you, do you, um, do you say something? And, but obviously just going and being confrontational to people isn't going to be constructive. It really has to come from um, an explanation that's an unemotional explanation and 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 ultimately it's got to be take it or leave it as well like it, not in a confrontational way but it's like you put this up to you to think about and I've tried to explain it it's like if you're having a conversation with someone and then they and you're trying to explain something if you engage them in it and they're talking about it well then you know it's worth talking about and if you're having a conversation with someone and they don't want to talk about it it's time to stop talking about it. Isn't time it to really stop talking. Yeah, that's which you know, it's not something we always get right. But is it okay if people get in touch with you? And how would they do that? It's okay if people get in touch with me. I guess. I mean, if anyone wanted to get in touch with me uh, and went to my website, the most useful thing about my website is it's got my email address on it as a yeah. contact. So, yeah. and that's and the website's southsidebob.com. Yeah. If you Google Sales of Bob, and yeah, yeah that'll, that'll come up. And then, and then there's a contact page with my email address on it, so you, which is bob at salesofbob.com. So, so, you know, I don't know why someone would want to get in touch, but... Yeah, you never know. know. They might want to book you for a gig. Yeah, well, that's a good reason to get in touch with me. That'd be a really good reason. Mm. Uh, is there anything we've left out? Something you want to add? Something I want to add? No. Is there anything we've left out from your point of view? No. No, no, it's all right then. Very good. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. No worries. Mm-hmm.